0: That will be our primary focus. But then we're going to jump over to Matthew chapter 1 and then finally Romans chapter 15. Isaiah 11 is yet another prophecy about the coming Messiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight And then to Matthew chapter 1, we're going to pick up from verse 12 in uh, the third part of the genealogy. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the follower of Zadok, father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And then finally, To Romans chapter 15, from verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. you may abound in hope. May God bless to us his readings from his holy word. I think one of the most mystifying parts of the New Testament for a lot of people are the genealogies. You have this genealogy in Matthew, and and thankfully I didn't read the whole thing. By the way, uh, you might wonder... uh, you say, "Oh gosh, he must have gone to seminary to learn how to pronounce all those names." But the thing is, you don't know that I pronounce those names right. The key is be confident in your mispronunciations. No, who's going to argue with you, right? You know, uh, even if, even if, okay, because they're Jewish names, right? So, so what if a Jewish person comes up and argues with you, and you say, "Well, well, I'm just pronouncing it as it was in the Greek." You know, so, so you don't have to worry. Just be confident in the way you pronounce those names. I have a friend that when she reads them, uh, if she reads it out loud, when she gets to a name she can't pronounce, she just says banana. Uh, but I think people would figure that out, you know, and banana beget banana, who was the father of banana, and banana gave birth to banana, who was called the Christ. I, I don't think that works, you know, so there's a little, some problems about that. But uh, but the genealogies can be a, a bit a, well a bit intimidating, uh, a bit cumbersome, and uh, really has messed up a lot of people because the genealogy in Luke and the genealogy in Matthew they they're not hundred percent in agreement, and uh, and when you compare the genealogies in both Matthew and Luke to to the Old Testament. You say, well, actually, it seems like they skipped some, which is true. By the way, that's why you can't use any of the genealogies to try to date the Bible. Uh, because uh, the, the Bible never intended in the genealogies to be doing uh, like a, a genealogy like we would do today. You know, people, uh, many, many families do their genealogies today, and you want to find every single representative of, you know, everybody who begat so-and-so that begat so-and-so and such and such. You want to find all that and all the cousins and all the trees and things. That's not the purpose of the genealogies in the Bible. It's to give us a sense of the flow of history And many times, the people that are mentioned in the genealogies will often have uh, significance or importance uh, in the story of the family, Uh, not saying that somebody else wasn't important, uh, just people tend to emphasize different parts of the genealogy of the family tree. But frankly, we all do that, right? I mean, you think about it in your own life. If you have a great-great-grandpa who was a serial killer, I mean, how many of us say, oh, yeah, you know, my grandpa, yeah, he killed 30 people. Isn't that great? Yeah, my grandpa on my mom's side, well, he was a thief. Uh, And, uh, you know, and my grandma, she was a prostitute. Yeah, I mean, we don't do that, right? We skip those people. Uh, You know, so even we in our lives, and I'm not saying that, by the way, you know, there were serial killers or things like that in this list. Don't don't get me wrong there. Uh, But we, we all get it a bit mixed up. We all get it a bit mixed up, or we edit our genealogies for certain purposes, to show certain connections, and that's certainly what Matthew was doing here. He was editing it to show a very important connection, and that was that Jesus could trace his lineage back to David, who was the king of Israel, because... In Isaiah 11.1, it is prophesied that from the stump of Jesse, when that, that lineage, that kingly lineage, seemed to be not producing anymore, that from that stump there's going to be a shoot, there's going to be life that comes out. And all of the Jews understood that this referred to the coming Messiah. So they all knew that Jesus would have to come out of the line of David. And so Matthew brings this up. Paul also brings this up, very important, that Jesus had to come out of the line of David. And Paul affirms that it actually Jesus did, that Jesus' birth, his kingship, his life, his death, his resurrection, they were confirming what had been prophesied more than 500 years before the coming of Jesus. And it's interesting, when you look at Matthew's list here, because Matthew's list uh, seems to be broken down into three parts, and each part basically has 14 14 mentions in the lineage. Uh, And so the question comes, uh, why, why that number? Why 14? Why three 14s? I mean, what's going on here? And there's a lot of scholarly debate on this. And let me tell you, nobody knows for sure. Nobody knows for sure. But what I find compelling is one of the arguments here uh, that goes to the name of David in Hebrew. In Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, uh, the, the, the Jews often attach a number to each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And if you take the three letters in the name of David in Hebrew, put their numerical value, attach the numerical value to each of the three letters, the three letters combined equal 14. Interesting. And there are three letters in David's name and there are three groups of 14. So it sounds rather interesting, moderately compelling, But listen, that's not an argument that you really want to die for, because nobody really knows, no matter how confidently they tell you. The important thing here for Matthew is for people, the readers, to understand that Jesus had come out of the line of David. Now, it's also important that Matthew is writing within the lifetime of Jesus' relatives, So there would have been people in existence who would have known whether or not Matthew was telling the truth. Same thing with Luke. Luke had researched it. Matthew had researched it. There were people around who would know uh, if it was true or not. And so there's a confirmation here that Jesus did indeed come out of the line, the lineage, the stump of David and that he is the king that was prophesied. And so with that in mind, we can go then to the text there in Isaiah chapter 11 and discover some interesting things about Jesus to see how this was manifested in Jesus' life. Indeed, it was. And we can know, get to know better the king, Jesus, who has come, the king that we're following. So let's turn there to Isaiah chapter 11 and, uh, and look at various parts of Isaiah chapter 11. And basically in that, in that first verse there, uh, verse 1, what Isaiah is affirming here is that the coming Messiah, who we know would be Jesus, would be a king that has Davidic lineage. You could trace him back to David. And I find it's interesting in, in Matthew's genealogy how the third section of the genealogy is not introduced by a king, but it's introduced by the Babylonian captivity, the exile into Babylon, because that effectively ended the kingly rule of the line of David. There were certain manifestations here or there, but after the Babylonian captivity and the return then from Babylon, there was never really a restoration of the kingship until it was fully restored in the King Jesus. So literally out of that stump of the line of Jesse, the stump of Jesse has come Jesus as the king. And this is also, we know that Jesus, it's a declaration as well, is that the Messiah will be a king not just somebody who's going to come and bring victory, but somebody who's going to rule and reign. and we know that that's true of Jesus. And then Jesus says that, uh, then excuse me, Isaiah says, that this person, uh, on this person, the spirit of the Lord, shall rest upon him. And in this, he gives us some insights. Not only about how Jesus would minister, but also about how God empowered Jesus. Remember, Jesus, when he came, was fully God, but he's also fully a human being. And Jesus did his ministry on the earth as a human being. He didn't do it as fully God with all the power and prerogative he had as God, because the scripture says clearly, Paul says clearly, that Jesus had emptied himself. So how did he do miracles? How did he do what he did? He did it by the Spirit of the Lord upon him. Now you might read in several places, such as the book of Revelation, uh, comments about the seven spirits of God or the sevenfold Spirit of God, and that really brings confusion to people, but it's interesting here that there are seven identifications of the Spirit of God here, seven identifications of the Spirit of God. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. When the, Later in other texts, it talks about the seven spirits of God. There's one spirit of God, but this is what it's referring to. The spirit, the seven are, is the spirit of the Lord. This is the spirit of Yahweh. It means that the Holy Spirit really is God, fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. Then there's the spirit of wisdom, And the spirit of wisdom is about how to live and process your life experiences in God, how to make good judgments. Then you've got the spirit of understanding. This is the spirit that gives you deeper intellectual insight into events, into persons. It's insight and discernment. You have the spirit of counsel. And the spirit of counsel is talking about directions and plans, the formation of strategy, battle plans and the like. The spirit of might talks about the strength and vitality of a successful warrior. It's the power of God in the Holy Spirit. The spirit of knowledge is a personal knowledge that results in faith. So there's a faith connection to that. And the spirit of the fear of the Lord is a respect and honor for God that affects how we live and how we worship. Obviously, I've gone through these very, very quickly, But you can see the full dynamic of how the Holy Spirit moves and how all of these things were manifested in Jesus. And the key thing here, the text says that the Spirit will come upon him. When you look at the Scriptures, there are two ways that the Holy Spirit interacts with us. First of all, the Holy Spirit comes uh, within us to convert us and to make us like Jesus in terms of our character but the Holy Spirit comes upon us to empower us to live for God. The Spirit within is about transformation. The Spirit upon is about living and about power. And the Spirit comes upon Jesus. And the good news for us is that the Spirit of God will come upon us as well. That's the prophecy in the the New Testament. That's the experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit coming upon us. So Jesus is the first one to receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. But we who follow Jesus, who have faith in Jesus, are also filled with this very same Holy Spirit. And it's prophesied all the way back here in Isaiah. And then the next verse talks about uh, how he will delight in doing the will of the Lord. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus got his pleasure from doing God's will and saying God's word. He says, I only do what I see the Father doing. He only said what he heard the Father saying. He didn't judge with his eyes or his ears. He doesn't look at us and judge by what he sees and judge by what he hears. He sees something deeper inside of us. Isn't that good news? Because none of us would be drawn to Jesus, if it wasn't the case. He doesn't judge by what he sees. He doesn't judge you by how strong you are, how tall you are, how short you are, how beautiful in the world's eyes you feel you are, or how you know, handsome you are. I know everybody can't be like me. But uh, how handsome no, I'm, you are. No. Know, he doesn't look at those things. He doesn't judge us by our quirkiness and the jokes that we tell. Oleshina is really thankful for that. (laughs) He looks deeper into us and he will not be biased when he does God's will. There's no bias. He, He doesn't have favorites. He doesn't like me more because I'm in the front. Isn't that amazing? This was prophesied by Isaiah, and this is exactly the way Jesus was. He was always hanging out with sinners. He was always hanging out with those that the world said, well, they don't deserve our time or our energy or our effort. And then Isaiah goes on to prophesy that this king, this Jesus that we know, that he will lead. This whole idea, when you read judge, the word judge, like there in verse 4, It says, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. The word judge throughout the Old Testament really means lead, not judge. You know, when we read the word judge, we think of somebody who's going to say, guilty, go burn for all eternity. That's not the biblical Old Testament connotation of being a judge. A judge was a leader. A judge was the person who made right decisions on behalf of the community. So whenever you hear God, uh, here it talks about God judging, most of the time when you read that word, you could substitute the word God leading. Okay? Very important thing to understand. Uh, It really opens up. Just like if you read Christ, if every time you read Jesus Christ, you insert the word king for Christ that will take you deeper into understanding what that word actually means. So in the same way with judge, judging is about leading. And notice here, it says he is going to judge, he is going to lead, he is going to do God's will, carry out God's plans and purposes for the benefit of the poor and the meek. Now to me, that is amazing and it's exciting because frankly, think about the world that we live in right now. The world we live in right now is biased toward the rich and the proud. Now how do you become a big influencer? You become an influencer by being proud, arrogant, and putting yourself out. You become an influencer by getting on top of other people. How do you get wealthy? You get wealthy by taking advantage of the poor. But Jesus, as king, will be king, will conduct his kingship, it's prophesied and promised, and we see this in a reality in his life, and we see this in a reality in the history of the early church. Jesus leads for the benefit of the poor and the meek. And he does that in righteousness. This word righteousness means right relationship with God and then with other people. Righteousness is all about a right relationship with God. So first of all, Jesus leads in a perfect relationship with God. And then as Jesus leads, he does so in perfect relationship with all people, especially his disciples. There's no bias. There's no arrogance. There's no favoritism. Jesus does it perfectly in relationship with the Father and in relationship with us. That is his righteousness. And notice how the text says that Jesus exercises his power in his leadership. It's through two things. Through the word and the spirit. Through what the rod that comes forth from his mouth, which is the word of God, and the breath which is the Spirit of God. So Jesus exercises His kingship, His kingly authority on the earth through the Bible as the Word of God, the Word that He speaks out, and through the Spirit of God who comes upon us just as He came upon Jesus. And that is how we carry out the ministry of Jesus. It's not about politics for us, It's not about power games for us. It's not about getting all the attention or advertising or anything like that. We live our lives. We exercise our ministry. We follow Jesus by the Word and by the Spirit. And the Word and the Spirit, which was the the primary things that Jesus used to exercise His kingly authority, are the same things that Jesus uses in us and through us, to advance his kingdom in the world around us. The word and the spirit, as Jesus leads for the benefit of the poor and the meek. And by the way, that's why we exist. We exist for the benefit of the poor and the meek. We don't exist as the body of Christ just to bring the, the powerful, the wealthy, the bold, the beautiful, although I know most of you are bold and beautiful, but uh, we exist for the poor and the meek, most of the people that are around us in this world. And finally, it tells us that this king that's coming, the king that we know as Jesus, that his belt will be righteousness and faithfulness. Now, the belt here is about maturity. It's about The the ability to fulfill your responsibility, it's about strength. So when you read the belt, it's what gives you strength. It's what gives you the ability to fulfill everything you're supposed to do. Uh, It's what demonstrates your maturity as you have a belt. Now his belt, the belt of Jesus Christ, is righteousness and faithfulness. We've seen the righteousness. Jesus' strength comes Because he has a perfect relationship with the Father and he has right relationship with all of his people. That's his strength. He relates to to each of us as his brothers and sisters, as children, adopted children of God. He relates to us in perfect righteousness. There's no anger. There's no mean-spiritedness. There's no capriciousness uh, in Jesus. There's no turning in Jesus, there's no changing of his mind. He doesn't look at you today and say, hey, I like that person, and tomorrow say, you know, I don't like that person. Why did I die? Did I die for that person? Why? why?" He doesn't do that. Jesus is perfect in his righteousness, and he's perfect in his faithfulness, his firmness, his steadfastness, his reliability. We can trust Jesus. We can rely on Jesus. He is the King who was to come. And it's so important to understand, as Matthew is pointing out, as Paul points out, that Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And these weeks in this study, we've seen each week how Jesus fulfills what was prophesied, in this case by Isaiah, more than 500 years before his birth, Jesus is the fulfillment of this. This gives us a courage and a confidence that the Jesus we follow really is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He really is the Lord of life. He really is the person that we can trust. He really is the only begotten Son of God. He really is the one who's fully God and fully human. He really is the one who died on the cross and paid the price for our sins and rose from the dead in victory over sin, death, and hell. Ascended into heaven where He intercedes for us continually and He's about to come again in power to bring just to this whole world in the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God Almighty so that we eventually will end up with a new heaven and a new earth where love and peace and righteousness and joy will reign for all eternity and we will be part of that who follow Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of the prophecy is a confirmation just like the resurrection is a confirmation and there are certain things that you just can't make up. Being born of a virgin, you can't make that up. That you're in the line of David, you can't cause that to happen. These are things that happen, can only happen by the calling and destiny of God. These are things that can only happen by the calling and destiny of God. So, how do we respond? Well, Paul gives us some good insights about how we can respond, the whole purpose of all this. Paul encourages us and says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. As we have faith As we choose day by day, week by week, month by month to believe, to have faith, to to choose to trust and to act, invest our lives in this reality of who Jesus Christ really is, the joy of God and the peace of God comes upon us. The joy of knowing that we have a future that's far greater than any present we could possibly imagine. The peace, the sense of well-being, knowing that nothing in this world can disrupt God's good plans and purposes for our lives. Not even our own ability to mess things up can mess things up. Through our faith, We can be filled with joy and peace. And by the power of the Holy Spirit of God who is in us and upon us, we can abound in hope. You know, our hope is not in any election. This election this week, as monumental as it was, won't fix our nation. We all know that. But we can abound in the hope Of knowing that there is a Jesus who is a king. Who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Who is the fulfillment of prophecy. Who is the Lord of life and the Lord of love. That there is a Jesus who has us together firmly in his grasp. Firmly as part of his kingdom. Who will take us into the future that he has planned for us. And that is our hope this Christmas. That is our joy and our peace this Christmas. Knowing that the Jesus who was born and laid in a manger is the Lord of all and the King of our lives. Father God, thank you so much. Thank you for giving us this hope. Thank you for giving us peace. And I pray, Lord God, for those that are not feeling a whole lot of hope or not feeling a whole lot of joy or not feeling a whole lot of peace, I pray, Father, that you would stir up our faith knowing who this King Jesus really is. Stir up our faith so that we once again are filled, filled to overflowing by your Holy Spirit to bring us joy, peace, and hope. We love you, we worship you, we adore you, and we thank you for all you've shown us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.